Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 119, verse 25. Psalm 119, we'll begin reading in verse 25 through 32. There the word of Christ says this. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have told them my ways and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me, and graciously grant me your law. I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for you to teach us your statutes, Lord, for you to make us understand the way of your precepts. Lord, we know that your word is filled with many wonderful truths. Lord, glorious truths that come from you, Lord, the very wisdom of God. And Lord, it is our desire today to behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, to meditate and to see those things. But Lord, we know according to our own strength and with our flesh, it is impossible for us to do so. But by your spirit and by your grace, Lord, these things are possible. Lord, we are able to see and to understand, Lord, to believe and to walk in the pathway of your commandments. And so, Father, we pray that you would give to us what we so desperately need. Lord, that you would not forsake us, but that you would cause us, Lord, to walk and to run, even, Lord, in the pathway of your commandments. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we remember that Psalm 119 is dedicated to extolling the many virtues of the Word of God, right? And the necessity of knowing God through his Word. This is the Christian life. It is impossible to know God, to love God, to serve God apart from the Word of God. Even as we read this morning in our catechism question, it's impossible to pray to God apart from His Word. Yet in much of Christianity today, this is exactly what you will not find. Many people claim to have great love for God, to have great experiences with God. They claim to live lives pleasing to God, but they have little to no knowledge of God. They have no love, no desire, no knowledge of the Word of God, yet they boast of their love of God and their many experiences with God. This is a complete and utter contradiction. Amen. It is an undermining of everything that we have seen in Psalm 119. The idea that someone can serve and love God apart from the Word of God is utterly repugnant and it is ridiculous. This thought or this practice would never enter into the mind of the prophet. But this is a common problem, and it has been for many years. In Hosea chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. The problem with ancient Israel is the same problem with the modern church today. Though God has written 10,000 precepts of his law, and where are these 10,000 precepts written? But in the word of Christ and yet, among those who claim to be the people of God, because that is who Hosea is addressing, they are considered a strange and foreign thing. That those who claim to be God's people, they are strangers to the precepts of God. They find it to be bizarre and strange. So then what is this knowledge of God that they claim to have? What is it but useless boasting, presumption, and pride? Very few people, even very few who claim to be Christians, want to know Christ through his word. But that's not the prophet that we're reading in Psalm 19, and it should not be true of us either. If we would know God, and if we would know Jesus Christ, who is sent by God, then it must be through the word of Christ. And there is no other way. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Romans chapter 10 Verse 17, that's the mind, the attitude that we have to have in our pursuit of God, in our pursuit of eternal life, right? Our pursuit of God is in direct correlation to our pursuit of the word of Christ. So let us then pursue the word of Christ. 
Let's pick up in verse 25 today. Psalm 119, verse 25 says, My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Here, he states that his soul cleaves to the dust. This is true of us as long as we are in this present life. Right, Even as believers, even though we have a new heart, even though we have a new nature, even though God gives his spirit to his children, we still in this life have the flesh that we must contend with. As it says in Romans chapter 7, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Right, I want to do right, I want to soar upward, I want to be there in heaven with Christ, yet evil lies close at hand in the flesh, in that part of me that still is under the control of the flesh, the fleshly, worldly part. And the fleshly part, it cleaves to the dust. And here we see that apart from God, apart from God, we have nothing but misery and death. This is what he means by dust. Dust is a remembrance that we came from dust, right? We have a a humble beginning from God, Everything we had in our creation was given to us by God, and yet all of that glory was lost because of sin. Because we came from the dust, and to the dust we will return. And even now, our flesh cleaves to the earth. It cleaves to the dust of the ground, and it seeks to draw us down to this present world and to live in sin. Remember Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 verses 17 to 19. This is God's pronouncement, his oracle concerning Adam, his curse upon him because of his sin. Genesis 3, 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. This is what we are apart from the grace and mercy of God. We are dust, and even our soul cleaves to the dust. It cleaves to this earth, to the things of this world, instead of it being drawn upward to heaven. So what do we need to overcome this? Well, he says, we need life. Give me life. Revive me, he says, according to your word. We need God to revive us so that we will not cleave to the dust, but rather we will seek to break free from this world, to shake off the dust, and to live to God. Do not be harassed by sin, by the world, by the flesh, by the devil. And who is the only one that can do this for us? Well, only God can. Only God can give us life. Only God can revive the soul so that it no longer cleaves to the dust. And what is the means that God has given to us in this life to shake off this world? To shake off and overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil? Here, revive me according to your word. The word of Christ. The word of God. This is the means established by God, used by the Spirit of God, to revive the sons of God. As we said earlier, faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. As we go through each day, we are assaulted over and over and over again by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they seek to draw us away from the Lord. They seek to draw us away from the heavenly life that God has called us to and to the life of this world, to the life of dust, the dust of this earth. Yet here, we are revived by the word of God. God grants life to us at our conversion by his word, and he continues to sustain our life, to grant more and more life to us by his holy word. This is how we must view our life. We must see and realize that apart from God, we are utterly destitute of anything good at all. We are of the dust and we would return to the dust apart from God. Apart from God, man is a miserable creature. He has a wretched earthly existence. 
He is a filthy, maggot-filled rebel against God. This is who we are apart from the grace of God, apart from the life that God gives to his children. Job 25, verses 4 to 6. Job describes man in this way. Or in Job, man is described in this way. Job 25, verse 4. says, How then can a man be just with God? Or how can a man uh, be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness, and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm? How much more man, who is a maggot according to the word of God, the son of man, who is a worm according to the word of God? This is a fitting description of man apart from the grace of Christ. A maggot and a worm before God. And even now, if God removed his grace from us, what would happen? We would return to the dust. And this is why daily we need God to revive us, to be compassionate to us, to give us his grace and mercy. This is what we read earlier in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Not only that daily bread needful for our body, but more importantly, that daily bread needful for our soul. And what is the bread that we need for our soul? Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, it says in Matthew chapter 4. This is what he is longing for here. Give me the daily bread, the bread from heaven that will revive my soul. This is what he wants from God. Give me your grace and mercy. Give me life. Sustain me by your word. Revive me. My soul cleaves to the dust. But I don't want that to be true of me. I want to have life. I want to be revived. Do so according to your word. Verse 26. I have told of my ways, and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Here he says, I have told of my ways. He has told of his ways to God. Here he's not keeping secrets from the Lord. He's not hiding in dark, dingy corners from God, but rather he is being honest with God. He's being open with the Lord about who he is. He's putting everything about his life on the table before God. All of his sins, all of his ways, he announces before the Lord. So he's not hiding from God, right? which is impossible. Right? We cannot hide from God. God is omniscient. He sees and he knows all things. He knows everything about us. And the righteous understand this, and this is why those who have true faith in God, they announce everything to the Lord. Everything that God already knows about them, they are announcing to God as well. Psalm 139, verses 1 to 4. Psalm 139, verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. There, God is familiar, meticulously familiar with all of our ways, even our thoughts, even our words, before they are formed on our tongue, God already knows these things. But the wicked don't believe that. They believe they can hide from God. They believe they can practice their sins in the cover of night, in the darkness, and that God will not see, but not the righteous. And here in Psalm 119, we're not dealing with a wicked man. We're dealing with a believer. We're dealing with a Christian. We're dealing with a righteous man who has true faith in God and knows that God sees everything that he does. So he's open with God concerning his own sinfulness. He acknowledges his sin and his guilt to God. Notice Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verse 3. This is what the prophet David says in Psalm 32, verse 3. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There, at first he kept silent about it. At first, he wasn't open and honest with God about it. But then what did he do? He acknowledged it. He acknowledged his sin. He did not hide his iniquity from God, but instead... He says, I'm going to confess it. I'm going to be open and honest with God. I'm going to tell him about all of my ways. This is what the prophet means here. I have told of my ways to the Lord. And according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. As it says in Psalm 119, and you answered me. I told of my ways and you answered me. I confess my sins and you forgave me. You answered me favorably in my time of need. This is what the prophet is doing. He's coming to God as a humble sinner, confessing his sins before the Lord, not hiding his sin, not making excuses for his sin, not fully intent on going out and committing more sins against God, but coming as a sinner, open about his sins against God, wanting to be cleansed of his sins and wanting to overcome his sin. This is the way that we must be. We must have this attitude to confess our sins before God in this way. And then he says, teach me your statutes. You must be humble. You must be a humble man to pray a prayer like this. You have to be brought low to pray this kind of prayer. This is the attitude that God requires of us. A proud man will not approach God in this way. He will not come to God and say, teach me your statutes. He doesn't need God to teach him because he is the fount of all wisdom already. Why would he need God to teach him when he can just consult his own mind? This is what the proud and the arrogant man does. But the humble man comes to God fully aware of his sin and fully aware that he needs the wisdom of God, that he needs God to forgive him of his sins, and he needs God to teach him his ways. And this is why in Isaiah chapter 66, the one that God delights in, right, is not the one who brings an offering to the Lord, thinking that he does something for God that God cannot do for himself. But rather, the one that God delights in is the one who is humble and contrite and who trembles at the word of God. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But this is the one I will look to, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. We add nothing to God. We benefit God in no way. We don't do something for God that God cannot do for himself. We are not doing that when we worship God, when we serve God, when we give to God. Whatever we're doing, we're not doing for God something that he needs us for. So that we do a service for God and in turn, he pays us back and does a service for us. This is not the way it works with the Lord. This is the way it works in idolatry, in false religion, but not true religion, not the biblical religion. God, we don't benefit him in any way in terms of doing something for God that God needs us in regards. So he gets no delight in those who think that they can be of service to him who think that God needs them, and then they'll get God in their favor, and then God will do something for him. But who is the one that God delights in? The humble man, the contrite man, the lowly man, who sees that God doesn't need him, but he needs a Lord. He needs God to teach him. I need you to teach me your statutes so that I can have wisdom because I am a simple man. I am a sinful man. I have nothing on my own and I need you to give me every good thing. Verse 27, Psalm 119, 27. Make me understand the ways of your precepts so I will meditate on your wonders. Here, he wants to understand more and more the way of God's precepts. And here to understand 
is not to merely have some factual knowledge about these things. To understand is to believe. It is to have true faith in the word of God. He already has faith, but he wants greater faith. He wants to understand more and more, greater understanding of the way of God. This is because none of us are perfect. We believe in progressive sanctification, that we are growing more and more and more throughout this life. From our conversion unto our death, we are growing in our sanctification, in our godliness, in our faith, in our understanding of God. And this is why he comes and he's asking God to make me understand the way of your precepts. Because I don't have perfect understanding right now. Right? This is as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that now we know in part. Even the Apostle Paul only knew in part, and he knew more than the rest of us. He probably part. So we don't have perfect knowledge. We need God who does have perfect knowledge. God has perfect understanding. We need him to make us understand his ways. Understand your way so that I might incorporate more and more into my faith, into the way I live, the very word of God. This is the same as Luke 17, 5, when the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Lord, increase our faith. This is what we should be praying. This is a good attitude, a good desire for us to have. God is the giver of of faith. God grants faith to men, both at our conversion and in our sanctification. God is the one who gives greater faith or greater understanding of his precepts. And this is what he means here. Give me understanding for the sake of my salvation, right? For the sake of my sanctification, for the sake of my benefit, because I want to walk in your ways. He wants to understand so that he can believe and obey the word of God. He is not speaking here of having some mere factual knowledge or factual information about the Bible. There are many people who have some knowledge of the Bible, who even have some correct factual knowledge about the Bible, about the contents of the Bible, but who do not have true faith and do not have true understanding because it does not result and lead to obedience. They have a kind of faith, a superficial faith, a spurious faith, but not a true faith. This is the great danger that we must be on guard against. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 19 James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Here, is that a true statement that God is one? You believe that God is one. Yes, that is true. That is a factually, conceptually true statement according to the Bible. God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one Lord and God. You believe that? He says, you do well. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder at this concept. So the demons have some factual information about God, but does that mean demons are going to go to heaven? Does that mean demons are saved? Of course not. Of course they're not going to go to heaven. Also, Acts 23. Acts chapter 23, verse 8. Acts 23, 8 says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Here, in terms of accurate information, accurate knowledge of the Bible, the Pharisees are better than the Sadducees. The Sadducees are in Jesus' day like modern-day liberals today. They deny the supernatural. They deny those types of things, the resurrection. They deny the spirit. They deny angels. But the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. Does that mean all the Pharisees are saved because they believe in the resurrection? They believe in the spirit? They believe in angels? 
No, even though they're right, and in this way, they're better than the Sadducees, it doesn't mean that they are Christians, that they have true faith because they have some information that is correct about the Bible. This is the way many people are. Many people have a certain knowledge of the facts. There are many people in our neck of the woods who believe in the Trinity, who believe in the humanity of Christ, who believe in the deity of Christ, who believe that Jesus died on the cross, who believe that Jesus rose from the dead, who believe that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, and who believe that Jesus will return again one day, who even believe in heaven and in hell. Many people believe these things. A good Roman Catholic believes every single one of the things that I just listed, as do Presbyterians, Anglicans, church, uh, uh, the Assemblies of God, the Pentecostal churches, the Baptist churches, the Methodist churches. All of them believe those things. Even many, whether they're conservative or liberal, would confess those types of things. If you go to their websites and you look at their statement of faith, they'll assert all of these things in that they believe them. And even in some of these churches, if they use a liturgy, right, a traditional liturgy of their denomination, they'll even in their services confess these things. Even read from some good creeds and confessions from ancient times that accurately portray and communicate the true doctrines of the Bible. So there are many people who know certain things conceptually who know certain facts about the Bible, but who do not have true faith. They do not have true understanding. It is possible for a person to know certain facts about the Bible and yet be unsaved. For them to almost be a Christian, but not quite. We don't want that to be true of us. This is a very dangerous delusion that many people fall into. Many people fall into this type of a trap. It is a snare of the devil, and we must be on guard against it. Look at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. Mark 12, 28. It says, one of the scribes, came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, You have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently. He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. This scribe, Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God, right? Because on many things, this scribe is correct, right? Even the scribe, he even advances on and adds to some of what Jesus said in the proper way. Jesus is quoting from these two great commandments, and he's the one that adds that doing these is better than, it's greater than burnt offerings and sacrifices, And this is why Jesus says, you have answered well. Yes, the things that you are saying is true. You're not far from the kingdom of God. But is being not far from the kingdom of God sufficient? Is that good enough? No, if we're not in. All that matters is whether we're in or out on the day of judgment. And being not far from the kingdom of God doesn't cut the mustard, right? That is not good enough because if you're not far from the kingdom of God, you're still in outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what should our desire be? Our desire should be to know for certain, right? To know for certain, to be guaranteed, to be fully confirmed. We should not want to barely be in Christ, to be not far from the kingdom of God, but to fully be into Christ and to be fully into the kingdom of God, to be baptized into Christ Jesus. Also, notice in verse 27, after asking, 
God to make him understand the way of his precepts, he tells us the purpose. So I will meditate on your wonders. So I will meditate on your wonders. Here, it's not enough for us to simply pray, but we must also meditate on the word of God. We come to God's word to behold wonders of God, the wonders of God through the word of God. Are we approaching the Bible this way? When we come to hear the word of God, when we come and sit and read the word of God, is this our expectation? God, I know that there are wonderful truths in your word. I know that every word of this comes from you, and it is wonderful, it is true, it is good. So help me see these things. Help me behold the wonderful things from your word. Also in this, there is a connection between the Spirit works apart from the word of Christ. He works with, in conjunction with the word of Christ. Yet, there are many fanatics today, many fanatics. You'll find many of them, especially in the Pentecostal churches and the charismatic churches, who claim to have some special knowledge of God, some unique experiences with God, some hidden wisdom from God that they received apart from the Word of God, who have dreams, they have their visions, they have their impulses, they have their feelings, they have burnings in their bosoms, apart from and even contradictory to the Word of God. And then these wild men and women will place more emphasis Right, More significance, more importance on their dream and on their vision and on their feeling than they will the Word of God. And this even happens in the Baptist churches as well. And they will even criticize. I, I can tell you that because of what I'm fixing to tell you. They will even criticize and demean as unspiritual those who seek to know God through His Word. Those who want to take the Word of God seriously. Those who want to search the scriptures, like the Bereans, to see if these things are so. Who want to objectively, rationally read the word of God and to understand its, its meaning. They will say, this is unspiritual because you're not being led by the spirit. You're not being led by your emotions and your feelings. Yes, even I, your pastor, have been criticized before for not being led by the spirit because I preach verse by verse through the Bible. As if there is some disconnect between the Bible and the Spirit. As if the Spirit is not in the teaching of the Word of God. If God's Word is being opened, and if it is being faithfully explained according to its proper interpretation, the Spirit of God is there. Whether a person has tingly feelings up his back or not, whether his hair stands up, whether he jumps up and runs around and runs through a wall, none of those things matter. Right? What matters is the word of Christ because the spirit of Christ uses the word of Christ to produce the child of God, to sanctify the child of God, to help us behold wonders in the word of God. There is a disconnect today, a separation of the spirit from the word. Anytime that happens, anytime someone is touting the spirit of God, talking about spiritual things, but not emphasizing and making the focus about the word of God. That is a spirit of a demon. It is demonic. It is evil. It is from the devil. No matter how many times they may say the name Jesus, if it is not focused on the word of Christ, it is from a demon. The devil, he wants to take us away from the word of God. The spirit, he always points us to the word of God. It is the word of Christ. Anyone who minimizes the Bible, we shouldn't listen to them. We should have nothing to do with them. If they take attention away from the Bible, we know that they are liars and the truth is not in them. Jeremiah 23, 25. Don't take my word for it. Take the prophet Jeremiah's word for it, who was speaking by the spirit of Christ. Jeremiah 23, verse 25 says, I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood? 
even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophet, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare. The Lord declares. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor did they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. There it is. There are those who have their dreams and their visions who say, oh, the Lord told me this. But he says, let the true prophet who has my word speak my word. That's where the true prophet is found. That's where the true man of God is found. Not in these people with their dreams and visions who claim in their boasting that they have a word from God, but in the one who has the word of the Lord. Their dreams are like straw. God's word is like grain. Their dream is like stubble. God's word is like a fire that will consume them. They are a rock, and God's word is a hammer that will shatter them to pieces. So we should seek God through his word. And we should look for the movement of the Spirit through the word of Christ. Psalm 119, verse 28. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. In the time of our sojourning on earth, we will experience many hardships and sorrows. It is through many tribulations that you must enter the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. These tribulations will cause us to weep because of grief. Whether this be the never-ending battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, is this not a source of grief in the child of God, the daily bombardment to be badgered by temptation and sin in the flesh? So that is a source of grief for us. Or whether that be the persecutions that the righteous face because of their faith in the word of Christ. Right? Either way, grief is a part of the Christian life. Our experience in this present life will be grief. We will have grief. Now, not exclusively grief, but the Lord does grant us some rejoicing and joy, but also grief and sorrow. This is as it says in John 16, 33. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. In the world we have tribulation, but in Christ we have peace. So there is this mixture between the two. The tribulation produces grief and sorrow, but then in Christ we have peace and we have joy. So when we have our tribulations in this world, when our soul weeps because of grief, where do we go for comfort? Where can we go to find strength so that we can endure these hardships? Well, what does the prophet say? Strengthen me according to your word. The word of Christ is the lifeline for the believer as he faces tribulations, hardships, and the sorrows of this present life. God's word causes us to rise above our circumstances. God's word gives us hope and comfort and strength during the time of our sojourning on this earth. Look at Psalm 119, verse 49. Psalm 119.49 says, Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. Then also, Psalm 119 verse 92 says, If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. Where does the prophet go in his affliction? What is his source of comfort? 
Where does he get life? How is he strengthened and revived during his hardships and his sorrows? The word of Christ. He goes to the word of God. And this is the problem that many people have. Maybe perhaps even many of us. When we face hardships and sorrows in life, we don't go to the word of God to get our comfort. People will turn to anything else but the word of God. They will go to godless counselors. They will turn to drugs, whether that be drugs prescribed by a pseudoscientist or whether that be illicit drugs that they get from some peddler. They might turn to alcohol. Others will go to escapism, right? Escapism, watching movies, watching TVs, indulging in some hobby to take their mind off of their hardships. Isn't this what people do? Generally speaking, when people go through difficulties, they will turn to any number of these avenues in order to take their mind off of it, in order to get some comfort, some relief during the time of their affliction. But where should we go during our hardships? Where should we go during the sorrows of life? To the word of God. Strengthen me, he says, according to your word. Find my delight in the word of God. Find my comfort in the promises of God. That's where we should go during our hardships. Psalm 119.29. Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. Here the prophet knows he is not a perfect man. He is aware of his own frailty, of his own weaknesses. That there remains the possibility of being led astray. Even as a Christian, we are still susceptible to false ways. We're going to be tempted by false ways. We have to overcome them. He's already said this in Psalm 119 verse 10. He says, with all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Isn't that the same as he says here? To walk in the false way is to wander from God's commandments. The way of God's commandments is the true way. Therefore, to wander from God's commandments is the false way. And he knows that this is a constant temptation. He wants God to remove it from him. We are going to be bombarded all day, every day with false ways. Thousands upon thousands of voices telling us what we should believe, telling us how we should live, telling us the values that we should adopt, telling us all the things that we should need and know for this life. Proudly, loudly proclaiming to us false ways that are contrary to the word of God. Anyone who's teaching a way that contradicts the word of God is proclaiming a false way to us and is a false teacher, a false prophet who is there to deceive us. Well, he wants God to give him strength to overcome the false way, for him to have clarity and conviction concerning truth and error. This is what we need. We must have the ability to discern between truth and error so that when people proclaim a false way to us, when they are encouraging us to walk in the pathway of falsehood, we have the ability to see it for what it truly is, that it is a deadly, dangerous, perilous path that will lead to ruin and destruction. Psalm 119.104. Psalm 119.104 says, from your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. This is the attitude we must have. We must hate. We must detest whatever is false, whatever is contrary to the word of God. We can't compromise with it here or there. We can't say, okay, well, it's just a little bit of falsehood. It's not that big of a deal. No, that's not his attitude. He hates it. He detests every false way. And this is why he wants God to remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. Make it abundantly clear to me. Make it obvious to me the contrast between good and evil. The contrast between the false way and the way of your law. Graciously grant me your law so that it will give me light that I might see the difference between the good way and the false way. Isn't that what he says in Psalm 119, 105? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As we go through this life, we need light. 
so that we can see the pathway, so that we can know the pathway to walk in the ways of God. And it is the word of God that makes clear the difference between good and evil, between truth and error, between righteousness and wickedness, so that we can reject and hate every false way and walk in the good ways of God. Verse 30 says, I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. Here, he's declaring to God what he has done. What he has done. I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. Now, when he's saying this, he doesn't mean that he's done this in his own strength. We know that that cannot be the case. Nor does he mean that he's done this by his own free will. But rather, he's done it by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I have chosen the faithful way. By the grace of God, I have placed your ordinances before me. This is the same as 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. So the knowledge that we are completely and utterly dependent on the grace of God should not then lead us to a passive approach to the Christian life. But rather, for the apostle, he says, I labored more than all the rest of them. I worked harder than anyone else. And so it is here as well. Yes, it is the grace of God within me, but I have also set before me your ordinances. I have chosen the faithful way. I have put this at the center, at the forefront of my life and my mind. God's ordinances are there. I have learned the faithful way. I have chosen the right way. And now that's the way that I will walk in. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13 teaches this as well. 2.12 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he does not say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. He says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, meaning you have a responsibility to manifest your salvation in the way that you live by obeying God. That's what he's talking about there. Not only when I was there with you in my presence, but now he says even much more in my absence. We are to work out our salvation in this way. And how can we manifest salvation without placing God's ordinances before our eyes? We must do that. We must be resolved in this way. We must choose the faithful way. We must place God's word before our eyes. We cannot have the false approach that many people have. I'm just waiting for God to change me. And then when God changes me, then I'll walk in the pathway of his commandments. When God changes me, when God gives me the desires, then I will choose the faithful way. Or I want to repent, but I can't because God hasn't given me repentance. So I just have to wait for God to grant it to me. I've heard people literally say these very words. In that, who are they blaming for their lack of zeal? Who are they blaming for their lack of faithfulness? Who are they blaming for their lack of repentance? They're blaming God. They're saying, I want to repent, and I would repent if God would give it to me. I want to live a faithful life, and I would live a faithful life, but God hasn't given it to me. These are lies. These are lies and deceptions and deflections from the real source of the problem, which is what? Their own sinful, evil heart. They don't want it, and this is why they don't pursue it. But not the prophet, not the man of God. He wants it. He desires it. And this is why he chooses the faithful way. This is why he places God's ordinances in front of him. Verse 31, Psalm 119, 31. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. This is what is true of the new man, of the new nature. At the beginning, in verse 25, he's talking about the old man. The old man 
cleaves to the dust or clings to the dust. But what does the new man do? The new man clings or cleaves to God's testimonies, to the word of God. This is the same as Genesis chapter 2, when it's talking about the man and the woman. He shall leave his father and mother, and he shall cleave or cling or be joined together with his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. This is how it is in marriage. The husband cleaves to his wife. The wife clings to her husband. The two become one flesh. They become inseparable in the sight of God and in their life. Well, this is how it is with the new man and the word of God. When the spirit of God regenerates a man, when he causes him to be born again, he is like a newborn baby. And what does a newborn baby crave? But the milk. So the man of God craves the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 tells us this. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Here, when he's describing us as babies, he doesn't mean this in the sense of immaturity, like he does in Hebrews chapter 5, those who need milk and not solid food because they're not trained in the word of righteousness. Here, he's using the desire of the newborn baby for milk as an analogy, as a description, an illustration of what the desire of all Christians should be from conversion to the end of their life for the word of God. And what should our desire for the word of God be like? Like a newborn baby craves the milk of the mother, so the Christian craves the milk of the word of God. Does the baby have to be taught to crave the mother's milk? Doesn't the baby have a natural inclination for this, a natural desire? When they come out, they know they have this craving, this desire that can only be fulfilled by the mother's milk. Well, this is the same with the child of God, with the child of God. If we don't have these desires for the word of God, then what does it prove? What is it showing that we're stillborn children? A stillborn baby doesn't crave the mother's milk because the stillborn baby is dead. And there are many people who are stillborn Christians. And it's evident because they don't desire the word of God. It's evident that they don't desire the word of God because of the many things that they will substitute and the many things that they prefer over the word of God like their recreations, like their hobbies, like their entertainment, like this and that. They would much prefer those things to having the word of God. And so they prove that they are still born children, but not here. Here, the new nature has an insatiable desire for the word of God. He clings, he says, to God's word because he knows the word of God is the source of his life. It is the word of God that gave him life. He was brought forth by the word of Christ. And now his life is going to be sustained. He knows that he does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he clings to the word of Christ. He clings to it. But he also knows here that his clinging to the word of Christ which in the sight of God is very precious. It is very precious and pleasing in the sight of God when we cling to his word. But in this present life, people are going to persecute him because of this. Not everyone is going to be happy and praise him for this. And that's why he says, O oh Lord, do not put me to shame. The people of this world will not respect him. They will not praise him for clinging to the word of God. But instead, they're going to insult him. They're going to persecute him. They're going to ridicule him. They're going to reject him. They're going to say all manner of evil against him falsely because of his love for the word of God. 
His glory will become his shame. This is what people do when we cling to God's testimonies, when we want to faithfully follow the word of God, every precept of God, meticulous obedience to God. People will say, even many people who claim to be Christians will say, why do you have to be so dogmatic all the time? Right? Why does everything have to be an issue of black and white? Why do you have to make such a big deal about everything? Why do you have to take the Bible so seriously? Right? Why can't you give some leeway here or there? Why can't you compromise here and there? And typically, actually, what they'll say, they won't use the word compromise because they know that that makes them look like idiots. What they'll actually say is, why can't you just show a little grace? Why can't you be more loving and more gracious and more open-minded? These are the types of things that people will say when we cling to all of God's testimonies. When we say, I want to know what God says on every single topic, and I want to follow it meticulously. I want to do it according to the word of God. He knows that if he lives this way, that he will be open to shame. People will give him shame and contempt for fidelity to the word of God. So he asks, O oh Lord, do not put me to shame. And will God answer this prayer? Absolutely God will. God will answer it. He may answer it in this life by delivering from the hand of his enemies, but he will certainly answer it on the day of judgment. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Mark chapter 8. And this is evidence of everything being backwards in this present world. The people who don't take God's word seriously, they're the ones that should be ashamed. It is a very shameful thing for a person to be a Christian or for a person to be a Christian pastor and to not take the word of God seriously. That is shameful. But today, they say it's shameful to take it seriously. But Jesus doesn't have this perspective. Mark 8, verse 34. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy angels. So they're taking up our cross and following Christ, losing our life. In now for us, it has relationship to the word of God, to the way that we follow the word of God. Because when we follow God's word meticulously, faithfully, not compromising here and there, we will be rejected and reviled and persecuted by men. But if we are ashamed of Christ and his word, then what will Christ do to us on the day of judgment? He will be ashamed to call us his brothers. He will be ashamed to have us as his people, and he will not have us as his people. But if we testify to the word of Christ in this sinful, adulterous generation, we will receive shame now from the people of this world, but on the day of judgment, we won't receive shame will receive glory and honor from Christ. So that's what we have to do. We have to not be ashamed of the word of Christ. And which of his words can we not be ashamed of? All of his words. Because he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24, 35. Then verse 32. Psalm 119, 32 says, I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. I shall run, he says, in the way of your commandments. Not casually walk, not take a Sunday stroll, but I will run in the way of your commandments. I'm going to run away from sin, and I'm going to run after the commandments of God. This is the Christian life. Amen. Isn't this the life that righteous Joseph lived? whenever he was tempted by Potiphar's wicked wife to come and commit sin with her, 
He ran away from her. He ran from sin into the pathway of God's commandments. And this is a way that we should live as well. If Joseph, at a young age of 17, 18, 19 years of age, if he could do that, then why can't we? Why can't we be faithful to God in that way? This is the attitude that we ought to have. When God reveals some truth to us, when we gain a greater understanding concerning sin, concerning righteousness, we should run toward the pathway of God's commandments. Eagerly, with zeal, not begrudgingly, not kicking and screaming, not moaning and bemoaning our existence, but with zeal. But many people, they don't do this. They don't run eagerly in the pathway of God's commandments. But when we're not doing that, that's coming from the flesh. The Spirit of Christ does not teach us to kick and scream against the Word of God. The flesh does, but what do we have to do to the flesh? We have to crucify it. We have to mortify, put to death the deeds of the flesh. We have to kill it. Whatever rises up within us that is contrary to the Word of God, we have to kill it, put it to death. We must get rid of it. The flesh wants to drag us down. The flesh kicks and screams against God's commandments as if they are a heavy burden to bear. That's what he said in verse 25. The flesh cleaves to the dust, but we don't want to cleave to the dust. The new man, he doesn't behave like this. He wants to know the will of God so that he can run with great eagerness in the pathway of God's commandments. That's why in Hebrews, the apostle says, we have to shake off the sin that remains. We have to get rid of these weights, these things that hinder us from doing the will of God. Shake them off so that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the new man. The new man, he wants to know the will of God so that he can run in the pathway of God's commandments. And here we are again assured that we're not talking about works-based salvation. We're not talking about legalism, as our critics will say, but we're talking about doing it by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God. It will not happen by man's strength, but only by the powerful working of God within us. This we will do if God enlarges our hearts. That's what he says here. You will enlarge our heart, my heart. That's what we need God to do. Enlarge our hearts so that they're not dead and cold towards you, unfeeling towards you. Make it bigger and bigger so that it's more vitality in it, so that it has more feeling in it, so that there's more life within it, right? So that it burns hotter and hotter for the word of God. This is the same as circumcision of the heart. This is the same as removing the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. This is the same of God giving his spirit to us. We need God to fan the flame, fan the flame within us so that our desire for you and our desire for your word burns hotter and hotter and hotter. Isn't this a good prayer for us to pray every day? First thing every day, Lord, enlarge our hearts. Lord, enlarge my heart so that I will run in the pathway of your commandments. And again, notice that, the path of your commandments. He doesn't say in the path of some of your commandments, but the path of all of your commandments, all of your word, God. That's what I want. This is what we should desire, that our practice, our life would conform to the word of God. And whenever we discover something in our faith that is lacking, something in our obedience, in our service to God that is lacking, when that is revealed to us, and we understand that we have in one way or another strayed from the path of God, then we should run with all of our might back to the straight and narrow way, back to the pathway of God's commandments. This should be our desire in our prayer. And by God's will, this is what we will do. This we will do if God permits. So let us pray that God would grant to us his favor, that he would enlarge our hearts, and that he would be the one who revives us according to his word. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you, Lord, knowing, Lord, that apart from you, we have no good thing at all. Everything that we have, every good thing that we've had, we've received from you. For we know that every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Lord, everything good in us originated in you. And Lord, it has come to us 
as a gift of your grace. Lord, even now, our soul cleaves to the dust. Lord, the flesh is pulling against us, seeking to drag us to this earth. Lord, seeking to cause us to be enamored with the things of this world. Lord, the lust of the eyes, Lord, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the vanity of riches, Lord, all of these things are before us. The many pleasures of this world. And the flesh wants us to live for those things instead of living for Christ. Lord, we pray that you would revive us. Lord, revive us according to your word. Lord, that you would take your word daily and fill it in our mind and in our hearts and that, Lord, you would give us life by your word and that you would cause us, Lord, to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil and that, Lord, we would run in the pathway of your commandments. Lord, we pray that you would do this for us. Lord, enlarge our hearts, Lord, that we might have more zeal for you. Lord, more eagerness to do your will. Lord, a greater desire to obey you. Lord, give us greater understanding of your precepts. Lord, give us a greater faith, more righteousness, Lord, more obedience. Lord, this is what we want. Lord, put sin to death within us. Lord, so that the flesh becomes weaker and weaker and it has less influence in our life. Lord, remove us from any false way. Lord, deliver us from evil. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but rather, Lord, Make the straight and narrow way plain and obvious to us. Lord, give to us the ability to discern between good and evil, between truth and error, so that we might do that which is pleasing to you. So, Father, we pray that you would work within us by your Spirit through your Word. And, Lord, keep us from ever believing this lie. Lord, that we can make any advancement in the Christian life apart from your Word, that we can have any experiences with you, any knowledge of you, Lord, any movement of the Spirit apart from your word. So, Lord, may we build our life upon the solid rock, Lord, upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and, Lord, keep us from going beyond your word or coming up short of your word. But, Lord, may we receive all of it, every single word of yours. Lord, may it be sufficient for us. Lord, may we desire to know it and to walk within it. And Lord, we pray that this would be our desire from now until the end of our life. Lord, until you conform us into the perfect image of your Son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray for you to strengthen us, to be with us, Lord, to sanctify us, and Lord, to cause us to walk in your way so that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.